everyone. Once again, it's time for Evidence for Faith, uh, the Christian Evidences program where we uh, we explore the evidences for Christianity and the Bible. Uh, we are a ministry of Ratio Christi, and I'm Kirk Hastings, and usually we have uh, Keith Kendricks with us. Uh, we're having a little technical problem getting him in right now. We're hoping... We're hoping that he's going to be able to join us a little later, but uh, we'll see what happens there. But we also have some other special guests today, and I'm going to introduce them right now. The first one is uh, Philip Evans, who is the U.S. Director of Development for Tyndale House. Is that correct, Philip? That's correct, sir. Okay. And you also have with you a colleague, Dr. Peter Williams, who is the warden of Tyndale House in Cambridge. I assume that's England. Hello. Yes, you both there. We are. Hi. Okay, Philip, can you uh, fill us in on exactly uh, what your uh, background is? Okay, let me give you a thumbnail sketch of Tyndale House, Cambridge. Uh, I've been involved with Tyndale House, Cambridge for about the last four years, but in the last six months I've been acting as the U.S. Director of Development for Tyndale House. So let me go through a little bit about what Tyndale House, Cambridge is. It is a residential center for biblical research, and it is the leading evangelical biblical research library in the world. Since 1944, Tyndale House has been tutoring, mentoring, and providing the biblical resource uh, research platform for scholars from all over the world, as well as providing a Christian community to anchor scholars academically and spiritually. So it's been quite an exciting ministry over these last 68 years, and we're looking forward to the future, because the, the missionaries, the teachers, the preachers, pastors, professors, and authors that have spent time at Tyndale House have made an impact worldwide. And we've got many famous alumni of Tyndale House, including F.F. F. Bruce, D.A. Carson, Wayne Grudem, Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer, John Piper, John Stott, and many more. But the, the focus is always on mentoring and equipping the next generation of biblical scholars. So that's what we're about at Tyndale House. Wow, that's great. Now, is this? are you any connection to Tyndale House, the publishers that publish books? No, we started, again, in 1944, uh, near the end of uh, World War II, uh, when there was uh, obviously a dire need for evangelical scholars. There were none uh, in the uh, British system, academic system, and uh, some uh, visionary people saw the need for that and started Tyndale House in, in 1944. So we actually predate the similar publisher name in the U.S. by 18 years. They started in 1962. Okay, great. Wow, this sounds really interesting. Dr. Peter Williams, are you there? I am. Hi. Introduce yourself, too. Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, I'm uh, the warden, that means the CEO of uh, the research center at Tyndale House in Cambridge, and uh, my great passion is to uh, encourage people to trust the Bible, so I do like to go around and, and speak in places about the evidence that there is for the reliability of the Bible. So I look forward to this opportunity to share something with you. Yes, I understand that uh, both you gentlemen are going to be sharing some evidences for the New Testament, the reliability <laughs> of the New Testament with us today. I think I'll, I'll, I'll be focusing on the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, and can uh, handle uh, other areas as, as well if, if you want to go into them. Sure, sounds great. Uh, we welcome you to live radio here. This is what happens sometimes when you're trying to get three different people from three different places in uh, at the same time. The technology goes in a little nutty, so we're having a little problem there, but hopefully Keith will be able to join us a little later in the program. Mr. Evans and Mr. Williams, if you could let us know uh, what you have for us as far as the uh, the evidences for the New Testament. 
Uh, this is Peter Williams here. Just to say, there is evidence throughout the New Testament for its reliability, as there is throughout the whole Bible. Uh, if I just focus on, on the Gospels, one of the things I think about how the Gospels are written is that they're written so that the ordinary person can find evidence throughout their pages. So I've just turned open at, more or less at random to um, Mark's Gospel, and I've got open before me the account uh, of Mark chapter 15 of Jesus being delivered to Pilate, being mocked by the soldiers, uh, the incident about Pilate giving them uh, the crown, the choice. Now, when I look at okay, so when I look at the New Testament, I see evidence throughout its pages for its reliability. And when I look, for instance, at Mark's Gospel, I think we can say a certain amount about what we know about the author from its pages. The author clearly knows a lot about Jerusalem, about set up there. He knows that there was someone called Pilate, that's confirmed outside the New Testament. He knows about the um, Tedron. Uh, again, that's not something that necessarily someone making that way away would know about. Yes, you're not. You're kind of drifting in and out there, but we're catching most okay, of Okay, well, I'll saying. try and speak as loud as I possibly can. Okay. You're still getting me. So, take a name like Barabbas. The thing about that name is it's exactly the sort of name that fits the time and place. Uh, it's got a particular linguistic form. Someone well away from the area of the Gospels wouldn't be able to make up a name like that. Uh, it requires someone to have lived in the land to know that people have a name like that. Okay? Right. Yes, I, um, I, that's a very unusual name, and I don't recall ever hearing that in any other uh, historical documents. No. Well, you get other names like Barnabas uh, where, or, or Simon Bar-Jonah, as it occurs in, in the Gospels, where you get that B-A-R at the beginning. It really means son of a father, which is um, a, a, a very interesting uh, sort of name, but it's not the sort of name that someone um, well away from the area would know because they didn't know, wouldn't have known Aramaic. Um, we could then look at um, later in the passage, well, uh, someone ca helped carry Jesus' cross. He's called Simon of Cyrene, and he's a, a, a Jewish person. Well, that requires someone to know that there were Jews in Cyrene, as indeed there were, um, that Simon was a, uh, a common name, um, and also that we have, um, he's mentioned as the father of Alexander Rufus. Well, the, the traditional story uh, told is that Mark's Gospel was written in Rome, uh, where, of course, Rupus is a good Latin name. Mark seems to be writing to a group of people who know him. We then go on in the passage, and it talks about Golgotha. Well, that's a very good Aramaic Here, name. This is Keith. We've fixed the technical difficulty on my end, but we're really having problems on your end now, it sounds like. So I'm going to have to ask you to call back in if you can use a different line. That would be great, Absolutely. but we're having a real hard time hearing okay. you at all. Okay. That's once a, so I'll be back just soon. Very good. Once again, folks, welcome to live radio. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I think I'm Kirk Hastings. <laughs> I think you are too. And we're talking about the reliability of the New Testament with an exciting guest who we're hoping to get back on on a better line so everyone can hear him better. But no, we're, we're talking with Peter J. Williams, who is warden of Tyndale House, who has a Ph.D. from Cambridge, and is an expert on the New Testament. Kirk, we didn't get the chance to do an opening quote, so while we're waiting for... I think he uh, oh, it looks be like back. I'm getting the signal that we are back on. 
So, Peter, go ahead and uh, let's see if we can hear you a little better now on this line. Well, I am sorry about those, uh, those difficulties on, on the line. Um, what I was saying is that there's abundant evidence that the Gospels are written by people who know a lot. For instance, just yes. when you get written in the Gospels that um, the place where Jesus was crucified was called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. That implies that someone knows the language of the land, uh, because Golgotha does in me, indeed mean um, place of the skull in Aramaic. Now, how would someone who comes from a different land, who hadn't spoken to people who'd come from the land, know the local form of Aramaic. They wouldn't. You couldn't go to a bookshop in Rome and ask uh, for information like that. So there are details like that throughout the Gospels which show you that they really have knowledge of the time and place. And I think this tells us a lot about the authors. The authors are not far removed in time and, and space. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. The uh, geological place names are something that only a person who was there at the time. So I guess the evidence is that maybe these were not necessarily eyewitnesses, but they were certainly people who were very familiar with the time and place. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not just one place. It's, it's throughout the Gospels. These people know uh, the geography. They know traveling distances. Um, they know the language. Uh, which is an important thing. There are lots of bits of Aramaic which are quoted in Mark's Gospel, and there's some in, in, in uh, John's Gospel, some in Matthew's Gospel. Um, that implies um, that they are speaking to people who come from that very land. Uh, in Matthew and Mark, it says that they know that people from Galilee speak in a different way from people down in Judea. So again, you get that sort of local knowledge. Um, I guess most of us wouldn't know uh, that two places less than 100 miles away in another land would be distinguishable by the way they spoke. Uh, so there's that sort of knowledge. And there's also um, the sort of knowledge you get of, of plants. Um, you take a famous story like the story of Zacchaeus, and, and people know, well, what sort of tree did he climb up? He climbed up a sycamore tree. What city is that set in? It's set in the city of Jericho. And you ask yourself a question, well, are there sycamore trees in Jericho? Were there sycamore trees in Jericho? And the answer is an emphatic yes. So it's showing real knowledge of time and place. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, or I could give another example related to Zacchaeus. So the name Zacchaeus is a Jewish name that fits the time and place. He's also a tax collector set in Jericho. Well, Jericho is on one of the trade routes uh, where people are going to have to come. So in terms of places where the Romans are going to set a tax collector and particularly a chief tax collector, Jericho is exactly the right sort of place. So we have this sort of knowledge just strewn throughout the Gospels, not just once or on one matter. It's, it's, uh, they, they know the geography, they know the names, they even know the weather. When it talks about uh, storms on the Sea of Galilee, one of the things that's absent there is rain. They don't have rain, they're windstorms, storms that cause uh, the, the um, uh, water to swell up and, and, and there be waves. Well, we know the Sea of Galilee is in that um, uh, valley which, uh, which uh, really uh, allows uh, windstorms to uh, rise up. Again, how does someone living in Egypt making up a story or living in Turkey making up a story know that sort of thing and yet they get that right? Yeah, this is truly, truly amazing. It's funny that this kind of thing isn't talked about much from the pulpit, this kind of, I guess we would call this internal evidence. Mm -hmm. And we talk to a lot of atheists on this program, and they vary everywhere from people who claim that Jesus never really existed 
to those who are a little bit more sophisticated and are familiar with some of the evidences and will even allow that the Gospels were actually written in the first century. Mm. So that's kind of the evidence that we want to, at least we want to update some of the atheists to to admit that these really are accurate stories about people and places and events that happened in real time. Yes, and I think what what the advantage I like about internal evidence is it's there for every Bible reader to see. It doesn't require you to be a, um, a huge uh, specialist. Um, and it, it means God's so written the scriptures that they have those elements of reliability within them. I do believe there's a place for external evidence, but sometimes the way stories just corroborate each other um, is uh, an important feature of their reliability. So one of the features we get is the way two different accounts can be very contrasting and yet have minor agreements. One of them, when you think about Easter time, is the stories of the resurrection. I mean, people who read the Gospels know that the accounts are quite different. When you look at Matthew's Gospel, uh, the women run away from the tomb and they meet Jesus. Uh, In John's Gospel, it sounds like Mary's just the only one at the tomb, and she turns around and sees the gardener, who is Jesus. Well, those are two pretty different-sounding accounts. But when you look at them, there are little details that match up. For instance, in Matthew, it says that the women saw Jesus and they held on to him. In John, it it doesn't say they held on to him, but Jesus says to Mary, do not cling on to me. So suddenly Mm. you see that little detail. And then in Matthew, Jesus says to to the women, go and tell my brothers that I'm going to Galilee. Well, he doesn't normally call his disciples his brothers. Um, but then you get exactly the same in John, where he says, don't cling on to me, uh, but go and tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my father and your father, uh, their father, to my God and their God. Well, of course, if you've got the same father, then you, you're, you're brothers. So you get these little phrases which agree in the middle of big narratives which are really pretty different. That's not the sort of thing that happens when one copies from another. It is the sort of thing that happens when two different people write down or summarize um, uh, 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 event. Uh, truly, you get those sort of little agreements. So, the, what we would call unintended consequences, or I guess uh, uh, coincidences, I guess what's... Yeah, sometimes been... undesigned coincidences is the phrase that uh, the Cambridge scholar uh, John Blunt came up with, and, uh, uh-huh. and, and there are lots of those uh, sorts of things um, uh, in Scripture, and it's also that when you look at um, 10 or 14 different ways of measuring... Um, local knowledge, the the Gospels are winning on every single one. Now, that's an interesting thing, because just getting the geography right on its own doesn't prove that this is by an eyewitness. Uh, They they could have got information from somewhere. But what happens is when they start getting every aspect of things right, they start knowing about architecture, the shape of the temple, the shape of houses and so on. They know the customs. They know the way the society is divided into different social groups. When you get all of those things right, you start saying, there would have to be a lot of research behind this if it were made up. Actually, the simplest hypothesis is simply that people are um, reporting what they saw and heard. So uh, what it, uh, combining with an argument from simplicity of explanation, it becomes a good case, not the, that the Gospels are necessarily each written by eyewitnesses, but they are all based on eyewitness testimony. Now, there's some new evidence out, I believe, that you've provided, or at least summarized, about some of the statistical analysis of names of people that lived during the first century and Mm -hmm. the relationship 
to the pattern of names in the New Testament. I, I'd love for you to introduce our audience to that information. Yes, it, well, it began with the research of a German scholar uh, a couple of decades ago, and, and she just simply compiled a list of everything that everyone was called from about 330 uh, BC through to AD 200. Uh, all of the different uh, Jews, all the names, all, look at all the gravestones, the bone boxes, the historical records, people like Josephus and Philo and so on. Um, then a British scholar worked on that and actually showed a correlation between those and the New Testament. So this is Professor Richard Borkham, who was Professor of New Testament at uh, St. Andrews, the oldest university in Scotland. Um, then, uh, doing some more work on that, we really find some amazing things going on in the Gospels, that um, the most common name for a Jewish man from Israel in the Gospels is Simon. It's also the most popular name outside the New Testament. The second most popular name is Joseph. It's also the second most popular name outside the New Testament. The most popular name for a woman was Mary. It's also the most popular name outside the New Testament. You get these just large-scale um, uh, correlations, and you think, well, if people were making up stories, how would they be able to make sure that the names uh, of the characters occurred in the same proportion as they were actually occurring in the society at the time? Um, that's not the sort of thing that happens if you're putting on names to a story to make it sound authentic. Uh, one of the things we know about names is that we're dreadful at remembering them. Uh, you know, we often forget them. We know that our intuitions as to what the most common names are aren't always reliable. So if someone's simply making up a story and putting on names to make it sound authentic, they're not going to get the right uh, proportions. Yeah, it seems if you kind of imagine yourself writing a story about uh, something that happened a hundred years before, mm -hmm. it just doesn't seem like you're going to... I, I mean, we know that these things change in just a matter of years. People are, you know, naming their children mm -hmm. names today that we would have never thought of naming our mm -hmm. children. Yep. Although there's some uh, big changes. I mean, the name Jacob uh, has uh, gone up uh, over a hundredfold in the last uh, 40 years in the U.S. Uh, so you really get some uh, very big shifts in popularity uh, of, uh, of names, um, and the New Testament fits uh, at the right time and place. But there are other features as well, which is if you do have lots of um, names like Simon being very common, you need to find a way of making clear which one you're talking about. So what happens in the New Testament is with people like Simon, where Jesus has two disciples called Simon, they add a disambiguator, something extra. So you have Simon Peter or Simon Cephas, the same as Peter. You have Simon the Zealot, also called Simon the Canaanite. So they have that extra bit added to their names. Uh, Simon the, of Cyrene, uh, giving the place where he came from. Simon the leper that Jesus ate with. Um, we have Simon the Tanner in the book of Acts. You have these extra things added when we have the most common names and not with the less common names. And again, if people were making up stories, they wouldn't know that that was necessary for those particular names, because Jewish names down in Egypt um, showed very different popularities. Um, so anywhere, just knowing a Jewish population wouldn't give you a sense of the relative proportion of names, and so the Gospels fit exactly for the time and place. I heard something interesting, maybe you can comment on it, that I heard recently about that 1 Corinthians 15 passage that is purported to be an early creed that mm -hmm. Paul writes about, and one of the evidences that I recently heard about is that it mentions, when it mentions Peter in there, it, it mentions him as Cephas, mm -hmm. whereas 
so this this appears to be then from a time before the gospels were widely known so that they so that people didn't really realize that Peter's name had been changed to Peter. Yes, so basically, um, uh, Cephas is the Aramaic word for um, rock with an S on the end, uh, to put it into Greek. Peter is the Greek word. Um, and uh, what would happen through time is, of course, Cephas would be the earliest uh, name that he would have been called in an Aramaic-speaking context. But as Christianity spread and more and more Greek speakers come into the church, then he would be more widely known as Peter. And there you have in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, talk about Cephas. And I think the thing about 1 Corinthians is there um, Paul is talking about all the people who saw Jesus risen from the dead. He's writing around the year 55, and he says that um, at that time there were over um, 500 people had seen Jesus risen from the dead, and most of them were still alive. And so, uh, you know, he lists all the appearances, and he lists Cephas. And it's not just that he's calling him what he would have been called in A.D. 55. I think the point about this list is that it's actually a list that comes from much earlier, because he says uh, uh, in verse uh, 3, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for us in, in accordance with the Scriptures, and so on. And then he lists the appearances. The point is, he had received these accounts of the appearances right from the time when he was first a believer, which is only, uh, you know, a a, a few years uh, at most after the resurrection. So really you're getting very close to the event, not decades away, just years away, uh, if that. Now, Jesus, was that a popular name? Um, Yes, Jesus was a popular name. Um, It was the sixth most popular name at the time, and that's why you get other Jesuses in the New Testament. You get Jesus called Justice, you get in the book of Acts, Bar Jesus, um, and one of the striking things with the name of Jesus is, of course, that um, if you think about Jesus' family, well, if you're going to have one of them who's going to turn out to be saviour of the world, he's the one with the right name, uh, because all of the other uh, names uh, in the family, that when you look in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55, you see his, ma- his mother's called Mary, the most common uh, Jewish name. Uh, his uh, legal father is Joseph, the second most common uh, male name. And then they've got uh, James, who's the 11th most common, Joseph, who's second most common, Simon, first most common, and Jude, uh, or Judas, who's the fourth most common. And then you have Jesus, the sixth most common. So you have ex- the whole family is a very, very plausible name uh, set for um, that time and place. But Jesus is the only one which is about saving. So it's an amazing thing. He had that name from the beginning. Uh, but there's a further um, uh, feature, and that is when you look at speech within the Gospels, when Jesus is talked about in crowd settings, they don't just say, here's Jesus coming down the street. They say, uh, what do you want me to do with Jesus? For instance, Pilate says, what do you want me to do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And he adds that extra bit, because not every Jesus is called Christ. So what he's doing is he's disambiguating. There would have been lots of Jesuses in that very crowd that Pilate talked to, but here he chooses um, the way of speaking of uh, Jesus that would have been necessary. When a servant girl comes up to Peter, uh, she doesn't just say, you were with Jesus, she says, you were with Jesus the Galilean. Another servant girl comes up, uh, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. That's what you read in Matthew's Gospel. In other words, when Jesus is referred to in the Gospels, he has, he's not just referred to as Jesus, he's Jesus plus something extra, and that happens whenever you get people speaking in the Gospels. Of course, the Gospel writers can just refer to him as Jesus, but the characters in the narrative 
can't do that all the time, because if they did that, it would often be unclear which Jesus you're talking about. <laughs> now, that's something that would only be necessary if the way their words are being reported is, uh, is the way um, it was exactly how it happened. That's that only necessary um, if you're reflecting the time and place. If you're making up a story later, it would be unnecessary because everyone would know who Jesus was. So we really have, even in the very speech of the Gospels, evidence that um, the uh, Gospels are recording people's words. Peter, this is maybe a side issue, but I was recently witnessing with a Muslim student, and I was talking about the Quran, and this is something, a detail about the Quran that, unless you read it, you, you, you don't understand they, the way they use names. In fact, I mentioned that uh, when it talks about Joseph in Egypt, the story talks about Joseph's brothers, but there are no names there. Mm-hmm. It's as if the, the writer can't remember the names. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of thing that you're talking about. Yes, um, so I think it's in the Quran, I think it's, uh, you, you've got a, a whole surah, whole chapter entitled Joseph. Um, and in, in that, it doesn't show, you know, a deep knowledge of Egypt. When we look at our Bibles and we look at um, the story of uh, the Exodus, it does show a good knowledge of Egypt. You've even got um, a, a verse in Exodus chapter uh, 2, which has uh, quite a number of Egyptian uh, words, words in it all in one go. Uh, if you um, do happen to uh, go to um, uh, Exodus, you can find uh, lots of knowledge uh, of that. Um, for instance, in, in Exodus 2, verse 3, there are five words of Egyptian origin just in that one verse. Mm. So you've got um, this sort of information behind biblical narratives, and I'm not a Quranic expert, but I, I don't think one could make the same argument for the Quran. Well, following this theme of the name of Jesus, I know that in parts of the Bible he's spoken about as Christ um, mm-hmm. or Jesus Christ. Is there any significance to how Jesus's title changes over time, and can that tell us a little bit about when the Gospels might have been written? Absolutely. So if we just take, what does Jesus call himself in the Gospels? His preferred title is the Son of Man. Now, if someone's going to say that was made up, that Jesus didn't actually say that, they have a problem. And that's because the very early church doesn't seem to use the title Son of Man at all, uh, or, or uses it very little. So it's not something that someone would have made up later. So Jesus speaks of himself one way. Then we have the narrators in the Gospels speaking of Jesus in a different way. They generally refer to him as Jesus. Then we have the characters in the narrative referring to him as Jesus, plus a disambiguator, so they might say Jesus of Nazareth or something like that. Then we have the epistles, which, um, at least in Paul, often refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Paul marginally uses the word Christ more than the word Jesus. So we've got, uh, if you like, four different ways of referring to Jesus, and yet they all make a pattern which is very hard to imagine anyone forging. Uh, Jesus speaks of himself one way. The narrators speak uh, of the Gospels, speak of Jesus uh, as a a figure who's known, but of course he's known because they're writing a Gospel about him. The Mm. characters in the narrative speak of Jesus as someone who is not... Um, they have to make clear which Jesus they're talking about. And then with Paul, of course, um, he uses the word Christ, which uh, indicates that uh, he is the Messiah. And so the very word Christian, uh, uh, you know, implies 
that people believe the Messiah has come. So I, I think I could make an argument, even without any of the New Testament documents, just working from, from Roman sources, that uh, there was a movement called Christianity that w- believed that the Jewish Messiah had come, because that's already implied simply in the word Christian. And then if I can take the, the <laughs> things one further, you take the name Christian. Well, the word Christian occurs thrice in the New Testament. It's, it's three times, twice in the book of Acts, and once in 1 Peter. And every one of those occurrences is by people who are not Christians calling Christians Christians. So it's whether it's Agrippa, whether it's the disciples first being called Christians in Antioch, they were called that by other people, or whether it's Peter writing and saying, if you suffer under the name Christian, don't be ashamed. Each time it's outside a language. Within uh, 70 or 80 years, Christians had begun to call themselves Christians. And so the very fact that all three occurrences of the word Christian in the New Testament treat it as a term that others call them, not that they call themselves, shows how early the New Testament documents are. Early documents are like that, later documents are not, because the later documents, the Christians call themselves Christians. So if you look at these, these names, the patterns they form, it's very clear um, that uh, the New Testament documents are early and reliable. Wasn't the wow. word Christian originally kind of a derogatory term when they when they first started using it? I think that's right. I mean, it's like the term Methodist and the term Quaker. Both of those terms at first were used by non-Methodists and non-Quakers and only later taken on by those groups themselves. It's the same with the word Christian. It was an outsider term before it became an insider term. Right. Wow, Peter, that is really good. I mean, I've been studying apologetics for a long time, but this is the first I've heard this particular piece of information. I wish that this was something that we would hear more frequently from the pulpit, and maybe a few of more of more Christians would be able to better defend their faith uh, when the atheists start asking questions. Well, I mean, I do well, think there. Is, sorry, I, I do think right. there is a, a case that um, people should use this information more in their preaching and Bible studies. Absolutely. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking with Peter J. Williams, Ph.D. New Testament scholar from Cambridge and warden of Tyndale House. I don't know when you were being introduced, Peter, did anyone ask you if you were warden in America? You have to kind of disambiguate. We (laughs) kind of think that Tyndale House may be some kind of prison. (laughs) Well, that's right. Well, uh, people come there voluntarily and leave there voluntarily. Oh, so uh, you do leave once you come there. <laughs> you can, absolutely. I was going to uh, make a it, reference. It's one of those British terms for uh, someone who's in, in charge of a, an organization, and I like it because it's the idea of guarding it, guarding its mission, and so on. And, of course, uh, we also have um, the American um, 501c3, the American Friends of Tindo House, Cambridge. So we, we've... Um, but uh, I'm, I'm the warden of... Uh, Tinder House and the president of the American Friends of Tinder House, Cambridge. I was almost going to ask him if he was the warden of a prison or not, but I didn't know if that would be polite to ask that question. <laughs> well, yeah. speaking of titles, isn't the evidence of the correct use of titles by people such as Luke additional evidence for mm-hmm. the reliability of Scripture? Yes, so, so you certainly have, uh, when you look at the book of Acts, there's some amazing uh, knowledge which is shown of um, the names of the various um, positions that you have uh, in the different cities. Luke gets them right again and again. And no one could have got that right uh, simply by looking in an encyclopedia. There was no way of looking those things up at the time. 
So the simplest explanation for the reliability of information Luke has in Acts is that he actually travelled uh, where it says he travelled. Um, so uh, there are passages in Acts where it says, we did this, and it makes most sense to say that's when uh, Luke was travelling with Paul, that's where he got his information from. Uh, and often, uh, by the way, the book of Acts is much more precise uh, when it talks uh, during those we sections where um, it gives you um, very detailed chronology uh, because Luke was there to record it himself and he doesn't give you such detailed chronology for the times when he wasn't there. Uh, for instance, the first nine chapters of Acts, he doesn't tell you this happened after five months, this happened and so on. Um, so he is using, um, you know, he's, he's, he's writing in a very reliable way. Mm. Well, Peter, then if we've gotten, say, this atheist friend that we're talking to, we've got them to the point where, okay, they're willing to admit that the Gospels and, and the Epistles were written by people from that time and place, that still doesn't mean that Christianity couldn't just be the result of the accumulation of legend and, you know, stories about miracles were added. Well, How do you respond I, 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 to that think, kind of an accusation? I think the problem you get is um, if you want to say that the stories about miracles arose as uh, stories about Jesus were told uh, through multiple tellings and got exaggerated, that doesn't really make sense of the data because let's take the feeding of the 5,000. That's reported in all four Gospels. And there are certain details about it. You have uh, the mention in John and in Mark that it, the grass is green. Well, is that made up or is that true? Well, uh, you can uh, then go and say, well, what time of the year was it? It was Passover time. Um, what, what, how much precipitation was there around Passover time? You can get a precipitation chart and you can establish that you've just had six of the greatest months of uh, rain uh, leading up to that time. So it really does fit the time of year. So they're getting little details right, and to say they get those little details right while they're con completely exaggerating the rest doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, so I, I, would, I would say when I look at the, the gospel narratives, you would have to find, if you wanted them to be wrong because of exaggeration, you'd have to find a mechanism that can distort one lot of information while it preserves another lot of information. And it's very difficult to find that mechanism. So I, I think that that explanation just doesn't really work. I, I think you have to say, if they're getting these other details right, that uh, you can't just discount the miracle. Mm. And then critics will also say, okay, so the Gospels, maybe they're reliable, but there were other Gospels, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there were multiple branches. This is the, the theory these days. This is, there were multiple branches of Christianity, and, you know, the, the right. Christianity that won out got to choose the Gospels, but what about all those other Gospels? Well, that, that, that's uh, fine. Uh, they can try and do that, but let's take the word Gospel. Where does that word start? There were no Gospels before Jesus. So there have to be some Gospels that come first, and then other people decide to call things Gospels. Well, I think you can make it a pretty compelling case that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are by far the earliest, and a lot of the other ones have simply copied from uh, the four. So uh, the, the Gospel of Thomas, which is a very um, popular one that people talk about, it begins by telling you that it's the secret sayings uh, of right. Jesus. Well, you know, if that... You know, that's right. pretty fishy to me. Yeah, it's a dead <laughs> the giveaway, right? Judas begins the same way. Um, and, and they actually, uh, you, you can read these Gospels, and, and they're giving you um, 
very little information. I mean, you read the Gospel of Thomas and you think, I don't know where Jesus is. Uh, is, he, is he in the sky? Is he on earth? I don't know. He's, what happens in that Gospel is he just says lots of things. We have no idea where he is. Uh, there's, there's no knowledge of geography uh, to speak of. There's no knowledge of history. It's just, um, you know, um, uh, 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 someone uh, mouthing off. So I do think that you don't have the signs of reliability with that as you do with the four Gospels. So you're really saying that these Gospels that have been rejected as legitimate Gospels, they were rejected for the very reasons that we're talking about, that they have details wrong, they have mistakes in them, they have things that disqualified them as being legitimate Gospels. I, I think that to call them rejects would be to give them a compliment. They, they weren't even rejected because they weren't really even considered. You know, there wasn't a church council that sat down and said, which gospel should we have? Um, these things never even got onto the agenda. Of course there were people who were pushing them in very localized areas, but they did not um, uh, get anything like the circulation that the four gospels have. Often the story is told uh, that the emperor Constantine, who converted to Christianity in the 4th century, he was the person who chose what should be in the New Testament. He chose the Gospels and rejected the other ones. Yes. That won't work. And for a simple reason, you can go to Dublin and you can get a papyrus there, the Chester Beatty papyrus, um, which has the four Gospels in the Book of Acts from 100 years before Constantine. Uh, it comes from southern Egypt. So the idea that Constantine chose what the four Gospels should be doesn't make any sense of why there would be a manuscript a hundred years before the Council of Nicaea uh, with those four Gospels in. Already those had um, uh, won out, uh, and, and, and won out at a time when there was no centralized Christian authority uh, to make sure it did win out. So at best, all he was really doing was agreeing with what Gospels were already in wide use. He didn't pick which ones, you know, say, okay, we're going to use this one and not use this one. He was just acknowledging these are the ones that have been used for a long time, therefore they're le the legitimate ones. No, well, I'd say he didn't even do that. You can read the canons of the Council of Nicaea. You can just get the text of them. They do not discuss what books should be in the Bible anywhere. They discuss the Trinity. They discuss what you should do with deacons and widows and things like that. Really? They do not discuss what books should be in the Bible. This is just one of those huge urban legends that's gone round. Uh, so that whole story about Constantine picking the Gospels is totally false. It's, t it's totally false. Now, as w with these things, often there is just a grain that it's built on, and, th and this is the grain. In the 4th century, we, we get the first time we get the list of the 27 books of, of, of the New Testament written down where someone says these are the 27 books. But to say that Constantine um, uh, had a council which chose the books or rejected some books just isn't valid historically. Wow. Now, Peter also... These Gnostic Gospels, um, they include in the title, they will say, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, for instance. And isn't it true that our earliest manuscripts or references to the Gospels don't say the Gospel of Mark, they just simply say, by Mark? Um, well, uh, yeah, that's, uh, the earliest manuscripts we have do have the word Gospel in, um, uh, but... They, they have one thing, let's say, at the very end of the manuscript, and then they tend to have a running header. <laughs> and those running headers often say, uh, just by Mark or according to Mark. 
Um, I wouldn't exclude those um, other Gospels um, on that basis. More I'd be saying um, that there are just so many ways in which they fall short. Um, They um, don't have any of the knowledge of time and place that they... You can't accept the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas because they both claim to be the only true Gospel. (laughs) So you you can't just, you know, add them in. That the point is, the Gospel of Thomas is saying Jesus' true secret message was only revealed to Thomas. The Gospel of Judas is telling you Jesus' only, you know, true secret message was only revealed to Judas. You can't just add them all in. It's not. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. Wonderful. Well, Peter, let me change uh, topics a little bit here. So we established that the New Testaments are reliable. They were written by first century persons, but the New Testament tells us that we ought to look to the Old Testament Mm -hmm. as a moral guide and, Mm -hmm. you know, that we ought to live out the moral guidelines there. And what do we find when we look at the Old Testament? We Mm -hmm. find slavery. We find genocide. Mm -hmm. uh, We find all these horrible things going on. And now what are we to do? Are we to are we to accept that that if a child is rebellious, we ought to stone him to death? Well, I think uh, one can ask a question that takes quite a while to answer, and I'm not sure we've really got time to to get into um, the details of uh, some of these um, things. But what I'd say is often people can make an assertion like the Old Testament supports slavery. But when you really dig down into the Old Testament, it doesn't do that. So, for instance, um, when Jesus is asked about divorce uh, in Matthew chapter 19, one of the things he does is he goes back to creation and he says, well, you know, in the beginning, God made um, them one flesh. That's the pattern. So if I'm asking, what does the Old Testament support? Um, I go back before the fall and I think, well, before the fall, we don't have one, a dominion of one person over another person. So uh, I don't see that as when, when God sets up what he thinks is ideal, there isn't slavery. Then people say, well, isn't the word slave used a lot in the Old Testament? Well, it depends which translation you read, actually. If I read the King James Version, I would only read the word slave once in the whole Old Testament. And it's one of those bits that uh, is in Jeremiah 2, and it just occurs in italics (laughs) uh, for one of the words that doesn't occur uh, in the text. Modern translations have tended to use the word more. Uh, But so we've got to ask, what's the word imply? Now, take the word slave today, and the, the moment you say it, everyone's thinking about North Atlantic slave trade, some of the terrible things that went on supported by um, uh, British shipping, uh, and then which went on in, in, in North America. Um, that's what they think of. But hang on. At the time of the Old Testament, none of that history had happened. So you've almost got to bl- blank it out um, to read back uh, into the Old Testament. So when Abraham has a servant, that servant isn't a slave in the sense of someone who's oppressed. He sends this man off with ten camels loaded with wealth with the absolute knowledge that that person, as he goes off to find a wife for Isaac, can be, can, uh, is, is trustworthy because there's absolutely no incentive for that person to uh, leave the relationship he has with Abraham. So it is a very different sort of thing. Um, now, there are some difficult texts um, that, that we, we can talk about. I'm not saying there was no slavery in the Old Testament. I'm just saying the idea that the Old Testament law supports slavery is not really valid. Uh, we have in most countries laws that regulate gambling. By regulating gambling, you're not saying we think gambling's a good thing. You're saying we're regulating it. And sometimes in the Old Testament, you have laws which are regulating something rather than saying this is good. And so to find out what's good, you go back to 
as a creation pattern. Keith, it so almost sounds just like... one of those, but, you know, the other <laughs> questions would take more time. It almost sounds like we could do a whole other show on this topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I can get, keep going on that for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Peter, it's been wonderful having you on. How can people listen to material? Have you written a book, or, or let's let's get our audience more in touch with you and your and your teaching? Well, there uh, is uh, there are books that I've written that you probably don't want to read because they're quite <laughs> technical. So I, I won't advertise those. But I'd say our website www.tindalehouse.com uh, has got a lot of resources. You can find there a toolbar. Uh, which uh, you can download, use on your computer, which will give you access to 100 English Bible translations um, and uh, lots of dictionaries to do with the Bible. You can uh, go to uh, our website and search on resources, and you'll find videos uh, uh, on apologetic subjects. And we've also got the American Friends of um, uh, Tinder House Cambridge, which is a means by which people can come uh, alongside the ministry. So we've got... uh, uh, lots of things out there to, and we'd love to be connected with people, and uh, maybe to visit people's cities uh, with with speaking uh, around the U.S. Wonderful. Now, and that American Friends uh, of Tyndall House does that have its own website, or would they find it at the Tyndall House website? You can either go to tyndallhouse.com or you can go to uh, friendsoftyndallhouse.com, uh, and and you can get in touch with uh, Philip Evans, who's uh, here with me, who is able to. Um, uh, um, put people in contact with schedules and so on. Schedules, I think you call them. Uh, yes. <laughs> Great. Well, Peter Peter Williams, it's been wonderful having you on Evidence for Faith. We really appreciate you being here. It's been great to be with you. We've been talking with Ph.D. Peter Williams about the New Testament, and you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Send your comments or questions with the call letters of the station that you listen to us on to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.